Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Last week, we witnessed the extraordinary sight of the Wagner Group in Russia literally marching on Moscow, allegedly not to replace Putin, but to replace somebody. Over time, we'll know a lot more about what happened. But for now, we turn to Yevgenia Albots, distinguished journalist in residence at New York University's Jordan Center, an expert on Russia on Russian politics, on the KGB, on how the country actually works. At the moment, unfortunately, not in Russia, where she'd much rather be, and where she has been a distinguished and eminent reporter, author, journalist for years. But it's our gain and Russia's loss. Yevgenia, let's start by trying to lay out a bit of the context. We've all suddenly discovered General Prigozhin. Who is General Prigozhin? In fact, he's not general. He's Mr. Prigozhin. He's he's cook. He's a cook. And his nickname was Putin's cook. He was the guy who, in 1981, was accused uh, of armed robbery, several armed robberies, and he was convicted to nine years in jail. These years were his universities, so he didn't have any other education. After he got released, it was already, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart uh, and, you know, market economy started. He got involved in all kinds of lucrative businesses, construction. He started with selling hot dogs, then, you know, construction business. And then he was lucky because... The, he got acquainted with the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg uh, by the name Vladimir Putin. And that's how his, you know, that was the beginning of his trip to become a billionaire. He's a billionaire now. After Putin, so during the St. Petersburg time, you know, Putin, you know, he opened several restaurants in uh, St. Petersburg and Putin, one of the frequent visitors to one of his uh, restaurants. In fact, you know, there is a picture where Prigozhin serves as a uh, as an owner of the restaurant to both uh, Putin and his wife and George, George W. Bush uh, younger than the president of the United States and his wife. However, when Putin became the president, his biggest money came out of all kinds of lucrative contracts with the Minister of Defense. He was providing food to different facilities of the Minister of Defense and uh, also uh, to the Minister of Education to schools. It was very, very lucrative business. However, that was not enough. Uh, Prigozhin started uh, his own sort of media f- uh, company in St. Peter, and he created what became known as a troll factory. 
So these troll factory heavily participated the American elections in uh, 2016. It's a proven fact that this troll factory was involved in all kinds of smear campaigns inside Russia, but also created Black Lives Matter fake group on Facebook, which was used, and, you know, some others. Prigozhin is, uh, is uh, you know, always bragged about that, that, you know, he took part in, America, in the American elections. That was also not enough, because then Putin asked him to create his Wagner group. Let's do a sidebar on Wagner, because everyone now in the world has heard of Wagner because of the events of last week. But tell us, and we'll get back to how Prigozhin got to where he was last week, but tell us just a little sidebar about Wagner, what it is, how big it is, uh, where it is. Okay, so we don't know, we don't have enough information about Wagner. It's a very, very shadow sort of, you know, business. Wagner Group uh, was a group of mercenaries which participated in the war in Syria, in Libya, and most recently in uh, Africa, in the Central African Republic, in Mali, and in Sudan. They were accused of all kinds of atrocities that are proven fact that they raped women in Africa, that they stole property, that they killed people. In Mali, they were involved in all kinds of very dirty tricks. But it's a private mercenary group. Air quotes on the word private, perhaps. It but... is private on paper. However, it was created under the auspices of the Russian military intelligence group. GRU. I'm sorry, GRU. Uh, which has become known in the last, uh, in the, during the Putin years, is a bunch of assassins. And that's what happened, you know, that was, you know, all kind of, you know, transformations happened to Gerald. So anyway, uh, they created this group. Why? In Russia, by law, any private military companies are forbidden. They're not allowed. It's a crime. However, Putin needed something like that, in order to conduct special operations where he didn't want to take any responsibility, you know, as a president or as a Russian state. That's why they created this. Plausible deniability. So that's what the Wagner Group is. Let's go back then. Purgosian established it, obviously, with support from the president and with resources from the president. He was, yes, he was for the resources, but he also, it looks like he invested some of his money as well. We don't know, you know, it's such a murky business. Of course. So when the situation uh, in Ukraine became dire, you know, at the front lines, Prigozhin brought Wagner from all the way from uh, Central African Republic to Ukraine. And uh, they started fighting, um, you know, in the eastern part of Ukraine. Uh, they have professionals. Of course, you know, many of them were in the Soviet Special Forces before. Many of them, you know, uh, took part in all these, you know, uh, unnamed wars, like in El Salvador, Nicaragua, and all these proxy wars with the United States. However, you know, because uh, a lot of Wagner soldiers died, you know, at the front, so Prigozhin received the permission from Putin 
to uh, go to Russian prisons and recruit convicts in exchange for the pardon. By Russian law, only Putin himself, president of the country, can pardon uh, a convict. So what happened? First of all, you know, the, the, it was a total shock to the judiciary and to the prison system because all of a sudden uh, convicts who were convicted for rapes or murder for all these violent crimes, uh, they were pardoned after six months in Ukraine. Prigozhin uh, was coming to the prison he was recruiting these guys. He will, he promised them, you fight for six months. If you survive, uh, then we'll pay you money and you're getting pardoned. And that's exactly what was happening. So the latest incarnation of Wagner Group was put. There are some old commanders, some you know, very professional uh, military guys and you know, intelligence guys. Woodkin himself, you know, the, the commander of Wagner. Um, he's a professional uh, military intelligence with a, with a history of participation in all kinds of uh, wars. But, you know, so the latest incarnation of Wagner Group was thousands and thousands of convicts. There were already, you know, were cases when these people, you know, were returning back from Ukraine and committed awful crimes, you know, killed somebody, you know, robbed to somebody and it's a order of magnitude do we have any idea how big wagner in ukraine was before last week the talk was that the, uh, that uh Prigozhin had approximately 50k 50,000 people however uh when he started his uh his assault you know when he declared his so-called uh, justice march. That's how, you know, he called his uh, mutiny. Uh, he said that he had 25,000 people under his uh, orders. It wasn't true. You know, he had about 4,000 people. However, these 4,000 people who had tanks, there were probably 70 tanks or something like that, who had a uh, the uh, necessary anti-plane, uh, anti-helicopter systems, and that's how, you know, they uh, put down two helicopters and one uh, Il-20. So about, uh, about 15 people died. Those, those were, you know, the helicopters which were sent to uh, shoot, to try to stop the, you know, this, this, uh, this march. Before we get to the march, we have to go back maybe 60 days, 50 days. I don't remember precisely, but I do remember that Pergoshin suddenly is very vocal in his criticism uh, of the defense minister, of the military commander, of the war as it's being executed. He's certainly not against the war. He's against the war as it's being executed. At one point, he threatened to pull Wagner out uh, of the Ukraine because it, he didn't like how, A, they were being battered, and B, how they were being led, the rest of the, the military. 
So something happened in the relationship, one would imagine, between Putin and Prigozhin, either before he became publicly vocal or certainly after he became publicly vocal. You're absolutely right. So there were two stages. First stage, so Prigozhin and his Wagner uh, were fighting uh, for the city of Bakhmut in the eastern Ukraine. And uh, there is shortage of ammunition, shells, and of everything. Uh, but also, uh, Prigozhin didn't like uh, the way, you know, this whole, you know, fight was designed. So uh, he went against generals he, uh, and uh, who were, you know, who were in charge of this Eastern Front. And he started publicly criticizing them, generals who were down there. For us, General Lapin that doesn't tell you anything, but, you know, one of these Russian generals. And it turned out that Putin was listening to him. And it became obvious that Putin was using Prigozhin as some sort of a balance against military, who became very important with the start of the war. Of course, you know, it always happens like that, that, you know, if you're conducting a war, especially a war of aggression, that, you know, military becomes very uh, important and dangerous to a dictator. Dictators tend to, to be afraid of military guys, you know, especially when, you know, they receive these uh, anonymous resources. So Putin at some point even changed a couple of generals and the head of the, you know, of this united uh, front in Ukraine, you know, following uh, Prigozhin's advisors. He did it. He dismissed, you know, the one, and, you know, he appointed General Suravikin, you know, bloody, bloody, bloody man, you know, who killed, you know, who, who became known as Butcher of Syria. And so he put him in charge because, you know, Prigozhin and also Kadyrov, you know, another Putin's favorite, uh, the leader of Chechnya, uh, they were praising Suravikin for being, you know, a great general. It didn't work out. Sorovigin turned out not to be, you know, this great general. So Putin turned it, uh, around and put, you know, the chief of staff, uh, General uh, Gerasimov, in charge of the United Front. And that's when it looks like Prigozhin went out of favor. Prigozhin doesn't recognize any other authority but Putin himself. He's this type of lackey who is working for the master. He has, you know, and they called Putin Papa, Daddy, or, you know, or Hazian Master, Boss. So, and all of a sudden, he was unable to get Putin on phone. He was on his direct line. He was able to call Putin, you know, on his phone, on direct line, and talk to him. And all of a sudden, he was cut off. And that, you think, and obviously can't know, but you think, because the criticism got too much, because he was too vocal, he was too visible. He threw that tantrum where he said, I'm going to pull them all out and I don't care what it happens. Was before that. Even before that. It was, even before that. I think that, you know, when you have, you know, this system of garas, which is all based on who is going to reach your ear first, when, you know, it's everything is done precisely on this basis, then, you know, whoever 
is going is closer to a dictator, is going to win. And that's exactly what happened. Prigozhin was in Ukraine, whereas, you know, Patrushev, the general Patrushev, KGB general Patrushev, Putin's a lot a long-time friend and pal, uh, and also, you know, the, the secretary of the Russian National Security Council, he kept telling uh, Putin that, you know, he shouldn't listen to Prigozhin and he shouldn't allow Prigozhin to speak against uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu and Chief of Staff Gerasim. They were saying uh, obvious things, as far as I know. They were saying also, in the state of war, we cannot, you know, army is based on hierarchy. You know, you cannot allow, you know, some, you know, thought basically to tell uh, all this uh, dirty stuff about uh, Minister of Defense. And that's exactly what Prigozhin was doing. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org donate. Well, particularly a thug whose background is a cook. Uh, he doesn't come with a military background, and he's not a military man. And if there's anything military men hate the most, it's people like that that somehow have come in favor and are suddenly leading troops of all things or committing troops of all things. So it's a natural competition. At some point, the balance of power shifts at the court, the emperor's court, and Prigozhin is cut off. The next thing we hear is that he's leading literally a march on Moscow. How do you go from being the president's lackey, albeit cut off lackey, to attempting a coup? Was it an attempted coup? In the Russian Byzantine tradition, a good servant never goes public. If somebody goes public, with his frustration about, you know, Minister of Defense or the chief of staff, as it happened in case of Prigozhin, it means or it meant that that one lost access, as we say, lost access to the body, lost access to the ear of, the, uh, of Putin's. That's exactly what happened. Uh, Prigozhin didn't realize when he crossed those lines. He kept thinking that he created this indisposable force which was capable to do what regular Russian army was unable to do. And the reason he was so effective was that because he recruited convicts, they, were, uh, dra they drugged those convicts, they put them in the front lines in front of Wagner people. So, and, you know, the way, you know, Ukrainians describe these they think, you know, they were, you know, one line after another, you know, they were going right, you know, to the machine guns, you know. And it was, they were like robots. That's the way they describe it. They were like robots who were just moving, moving, moving. And then uh, behind them, there were, you know, Wagner people who were taking, you know, who were uh, uh, taking one building after another. So, uh Prigozhin didn't realize that he crossed the lines. 
that, you know, his, you know, people who didn't like him from Putin's uh, court, as you rightly put it, you know, and of course, you know, he had hell of a lot of enemies. After all, he's a billionaire. He's supposed to have a hell. Um, they told Putin that, you know, that uh, Prigozhin was doing something uh, irresponsible. So Prigozhin started, you know, it was almost a physical feeling that he was started banging into Putin's door and saying, Papa, Daddy, Master, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who really known to you. I'm the only one now. You know, you're surrounded by bad guys. Fire them. Fire the Shoigu Minister of Defense. Fire Gerasimov, Chief of Staff. Fire everyone. I'm the, I'm Prigozhin. I'm the only one. So you think in his mind, it wasn't about getting rid of Putin. It was getting rid of the rest of the court. Absolutely. But also, you know, he, he knew because what happened that so, uh, Putin issued two decrees, but basically pronounced Prigozhin dead, figuratively speaking. He became, you know, dead man walking. I still think that he's a dead man walking. First, he deprived Prigozhin from the right totally unlawfully, totally with a violation of all Russian laws, the entire system of justice, to recruit convicts. That was number one. And Putin gave this uh, right to the Minister of Defense, to Prigozhin's enemies. Number two, Putin issued an a decree in accordance with which all that type of, you know, private armies, and by then there were already, you know, five private or six private armies like that, you know. Diripaska had his private army. Gazprom had a couple of private armies, you know, a couple of governors. It became, you know, totally out of hand. And he issued this decree in accordance with which Wagner was to become part of the Ministry of Defense. They were to sign a contract with the Ministry of Defense. So Prigozhin was about to become nobody, and his worst enemies were, had an upper hand. So he realized, he's dead, he's dead. So by, by, at that exactly time, he had no choice. He basically was fighting for his survival. So guy totally, you know, totally out of hands, you know, uh, doesn't really understand the reality spend months and months, you know, uh, at the front lines. And he decided, you know, that, you know, if Putin doesn't want to pick up a phone, and if Putin decided to choose the side of his enemies, then he has to do something that will make Putin to change. And that was a pure black bee. So that's how, you know, on... Uh, Whatever it was, date, you know. It's hard to keep the dates straight. Yes. On the 23rd of June, Prigozhin ordered his Wagner group, approximately four, maybe 5,000 uh, people, uh, 70 tanks, you know, and, you know, artillery, etc., cross the border from Ukraine to Russia, and they marched to the city of rostov Nadanu. That's the uh, city, it's a southern city where the headquarters of the uh, southern military district. And they took it over. 
Why didn't the Russians fight? Were they just surprised that they have no orders? Was it the same kind of confusion we've seen in the Ukraine? The chain of command just doesn't seem to work very well. Rostov-Nodonov is a special city for Wagner's. Why? Because a lot of them, they moved their families from other cities of the Russian Federation to Rostov-Nodonov. Why? Because it's southern border of Russia with Ukraine, and it was much closer to the front lines. So it was approximately 120 kilometers from the front lines, 80 miles, right? So they moved their families there. And so, in, you know, there were their families, their relatives, their friends, and etc. So that's number one. Number two, Putin didn't want to fight. He didn't want to have a fighting on the streets of the Russian cities between one part of the Russian army with another sort of part of the Russian army. So he sent the deputy head of the military intelligence group and the deputy head of the Minister of Defense to negotiate with Rigoshin. And they started negotiation. And obviously there was a trade because, you know, Prigozhin was bargaining. He was bargaining for his life. So Prigozhin expected that the minute he crossed the border and announced that he has, you know, this uh, march of, of justice, justice march, we're going to kick out all these corrupt military officials from Moscow. A very populist kind of very. argument. Absolutely. Absolutely populist. And that's why, by the way, that much appreciated by the, by the uh, people on the street. Because we've seen images of people cheering uh, Vergoshin and his troops as they go by. So some of it may well have been their people, their, their, their girlfriends, their, their mothers, their sisters. And some of it may have been response to this populist uh, idea that we're going to cleanse the country. Absolutely. Not just the country. Capital. He was going to clean, you know, for all this corrupted, kick out all these corrupted officials from us. And then the next thing we hear is, nope, I'm going to retreat. I'm going to Belarus. There's a deal. Um, we're going to stand down this offensive. Again, we can't know the details, but what do you think happened? We, do, we know some. We know that uh, Putin was silent the first day, and the entire country kept asking, wait a second, what's going on? There is a guy who, uh, who. This crazy man driving tanks towards you and yelling and screaming. Exactly. What's going on? What's going on? And you would expect, you know, the leader of the country to come out and say something. But the leader of the country, as it always happens with Putin, he was in his bunker trying not to make any decisions. So uh, uh, finally, you know, on the, the, the second day, June the 24th, Putin came out and he called Prigozhin a traitor. And as, as the one who put a knife in his back and the back of the country during the time of the war, all this kind of stuff. That was very important because that was a sign to those might-be supporters to Prigozhin that Putin is not going to uh, switch sides, that he's not going to support Prigozhin. Therefore, Prigozhin did have backers. We know this that he had negotiations with some important people, one, whom, you know, one of whom he knew since St. Petersburg, that's General Zolotov, uh, the head of the uh, Russian uh, riot police. It's about 400,000 strong body 
which is very good, which was very good in uh, beating, uh, you know, demonstrators and, you know, protesters like me. You know, time and again, you know, I had, you know, uh, uh, had, you know, problems with them. But anyway, so, but uh, they performed badly at the front lines. They were withdrawn. But anyway, he's known, Zolda was known to be one of Prigozhin's, you know, pals. Another one was Governor Dumin. He's a governor of Tula district. That's a district not far from Moscow. It is heavily militarized uh, uh, district. Dumin uh, formerly was Putin's bodyguard, personal bodyguard. And then he was appointed as the deputy minister of defense in charge of intelligence. So he w- that's why, you know, they, he was also connected with Wagner. So, and they didn't respond. Obviously, Prigozhin was waiting. He was making appeal. He made an appeal to people in uniforms, join us, let's, you know, cleanse the country, get rid. And also, it was the first time that Prigozhin uh, named Putin. He, he, you know, he was obviously very upset that Putin qualified him as a, uh, as a traitor. But also, it was a sign that Prigozhin realized Putin was not going to switch sides. He lost. Prigozhin had to make a decision. He kept uh, marching towards Moscow. And Moscow was very serious about that. There were all kinds of preparations. I spoke with my relatives and friends in Moscow. They, the road which led from Rostov-Don to Moscow, it's so-called Road M4. It was totally blocked. And the ring road around Moscow was also blocked with, uh, they were preparing, you know, there were trucks and uh, buses and etc. They were preparing to fight. So precaution was taken one city after another to Kvaronish. There was, you know, a couple of helicopters which were sent by the Russian army to stop them, and they they killed these uh, helicopters. There was an uh, aircraft which was to direct, you know, activities uh, uh, up in the air, and they also managed to take it down. And approximately 15 people said died, even though, though precaution kept saying that, you know, we're not going to kill any of Russians, we're not against Russians. This is not a civil war. We're just against corrupted officials. So, but what we didn't know on June 24th, and we learn only much later when it was already 8 o'clock in the evening in Moscow, was that that Lukashenko, the dictator of uh, Belarus, a vassal state. Belarus, Belarus now is a vassal state. It's a subordinate to uh, Putin. He was involved in negotiations as they, Kozhan Lukashenko knew each other, you know, uh, for a couple of decades. He was involved in negotiations. And all of a sudden, when Wagner Group was some 184 kilometers from Moscow, Prigozhin announced that they, uh, uh, they, that, you know, the match uh, came to an end. They're going to revert. Wagner Group will go to the training camps. And he will proceed to Belarus. At the same time, it was announced 
that even though uh, Russian Procurator General initiated a criminal case or, or you know, several criminal cases against Prigozhin, treason and all mutiny and all other st stuff, uh, all charges are dropped. But also, all charges are dropped against those Wagner people who participated in this mutiny. Amazing. Uh, so that's where we now. Uh, uh we don't know where is Prigozhin. At the same time, what's also very important to say that uh, Russian secret police, uh, FSB, conducted a search of Prigozhin's office in St. Petersburg. They found four billion rubles in cash. Which is something like $50 million. Exactly. They found a lot of white powder, which likely... It's probably not talcum powder. It's probably cocaine. A lot of cocaine. They found uh, gold. A lot of... Uh, what's the English for that, you know? Bullion. Gold bullion. Okay. So they found a lot of stuff in his office. And of course, Prigozhin, who was basically the master of St. Peter, the one who was uh, known to have direct access to Putin, he never expected that anyone was going to search his office, but they did. They also found several uh, foreign passports with Prigozhin's picture, which he used. Prigozhin is under all kinds of sanctions. United States, you know, Great Britain, Europe, you name it. But, you know, for those like Prigozhin, you know, there are no borders. So there were several passports that allowed him to travel, and that's exactly what he did, of course. <laughs> That's so we're at, the, we're at the point, we are at the point now where the mutiny is over by all appearances. Putin's regime survived by all appearances. Who knows what happens next and when it happens. So let's not speculate on what happens next. Let's fast forward in a very simple question. What do you imagine the consequences of this will be? Not today or tomorrow, but sort of the, the meaningful longer-term consequences of an attempted mutiny, of a break in the court, and at least for the time being, the disappearance of Prigozhin. First of all, I don't think that the story is over. I think it's intermission, you know, please get popcorn, you know, we're going to have a little more, you know, mini-series. Uh, so we don't know the finale yet. Uh, I do think that uh, Prigozhin is a dead man walking. However, these uh, two, those two days of this attempted mutiny or real mutiny showed that, uh, first of all, total failure of the Russian intelligence. American intelligence knew about the, that Prigozhin was... Uh, 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 was conducting some preparations for this, you know, assault on Moscow at least three days before. Some uh, newspapers, some American newspapers claim that in mid-June they already knew, intelligence uh, already knew that uh, Prigozhin was going some, doing something like that. So basically, of course, they taped. Uh, Russian intelligence failed to, uh, to get this information. Failed again. Russian intelligence has had a bad couple years. Yes. 
So that's number one. Number two, Prigozhin and his 4,000 strong men managed to go from the border of Russia, from the uh, southern border of Russia, all the way uh, several hundred kilometers, at least six or seven hundred kilometers, and approached those and, you know, and got all the way, you know, some, you know, close to Moscow. And there was no police. There was just none. No police, no riot police, no special forces, no uh, FSB has several, you know, uh, military groups, divisions, nothing. What is it to say? It is to say that the Russian the system is so deadly corrupt that it's important that even when it needs to defend itself, forget about people, but it was a question about defending the system. It's also fake. And that became openly open to everyone. There is a crack uh, in the very top nomenclatura uh, of the Russian power. Or you, you would say elites. I don't call them elites. Of this nomenclatura at the very top. There is a crack, obviously. People were sitting, as we, you know, there is a saying in uh, Russia, to sit on the fences and wait who is going to win. Neither Prime Minister Mishustin made a statement, nor uh, Mayor of Moscow, Mr. Sabanian, made a statement. None of these top uh, nomenclature guys, none of them made any statement in defense or whatever. My last question then, is this the beginning of the end of Vladimir Putin? Absolutely. No question asked. That's the beginning of the end. It's the question whether it's a question of weeks or months, we yet to know. But for sure, that's the beginning of the end. Evgenia Albots, thank you. Thank you for that forecast, but also thank you for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.